electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. I'm Scott Wapner on day 177 of the coronavirus crisis. Tonight, the nation's top doctor warns the next few weeks are critical in our fight against the virus. We are still in the middle of the first wave. Dr. Anthony Fauci goes before members of Congress. So before you start talking about what a second wave is, what we'd like to do is to get this outbreak under control. Tonight, details on what he said and where we stand. It's going to be very hard for local school districts to make decisions to open. And are educators prepared to keep the doors closed in September? This CNBC special report begins right now. Here's Scott Wapner. And welcome. It is good to have you with us on this Tuesday night. Our top story, Dr. Anthony Fauci's warning for the nation as he testified before Congress today. We do have CNBC contributor Dr. Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner. He is with us once again tonight. Dr. Gottlieb, welcome back. Dr. Fauci today saying the next two weeks are going to be critical. I'm assuming uh, you agree with that? I agree with it. I think really this week's critical. And when you look at some of the states, the growth in cases in some of the states, they may be under exponential growth right now. Certainly the cases that are building in Texas would would um, be indicative of the fact that there is exponential growth in cases there and there is a major outbreak underway in that state. So he said we're in the middle of the first wave. That's key as there are some questions as to whether we're still seeing the first wave or the second wave. The other issue that we need to deal with tonight is that models suggest the spread has actually accelerated since last week. Uh, Dr. Gottlieb, that's according to Morgan Stanley. You cited that today on Twitter. Yeah, it's very clear that there's multiple states right now that have epidemics underway. When you go to RT Live, which has done a pretty good job of tracking the reproduction rate in different states, the scope of the epidemic in different states, it shows about 30 states where the epidemic's expanding. And um, about a week ago, there were only about 15 states where the epidemic was still expanding. When you look at Arizona with 3,600 cases, California with 5,000, um, Texas with fi- almost 5,500, Florida with 3,300 today, it's very clear that there is epidemics underway in these southern states. And the challenge is it's going to be hard to get them under control because these states aren't going to revert back to the population-wide mitigation, which they never really implemented fully to begin with. Um, it's going to be hard to implement universal masking after all the messaging around that and, and the mixed messaging and the discretion that's being given to local officials. So it's hard to see what's going to happen that's going to intervene to stop the spread. A lot of these cases are younger people, and the fact that we're diagnosing so many younger people with infection and that they're starting to show up in the hospital as well is an indication that the spread must be far more pervasive at the community level because we know only a smaller percentage of younger people are going to present with symptoms severe enough to get them tested and certainly to get hospitalized. So you could surmise from that 
that the spread in these states much, must be pretty widespread at this point. So that's going to be hard to get under control. We have our sound now uh, ready from Dr. Fauci today on Capitol Hill. Let's listen and we can react to it on the other side. We're now seeing a disturbing surge of infections that looks like it's a combination. But one of the things is an increase in community spread. And that's something that I'm really quite concerned about that. Do you now regret not advising people more forcefully to wear masks earlier? Okay, we're going to play that game. Um, Let me explain to you what happened back then. Should be a yes or a no. No, there's more than a yes or no by the tone of your question. I don't regret that because let me explain to you what happened. At that time, there was a paucity of equipment that our healthcare providers needed who put themselves daily in harm's way of taking care of people who are ill. We did not want to divert masks and PPE away from them to be used by the people. I think thinking that young people have no deleterious consequences is not true. We're seeing more and more complications in young people. When, and I believe it will be when and not if, we get favorable candidates with good results, we will be able to make them available to the American public, as I said to this committee months ago, within a year from when we started, which would put us at the end of this calendar year and the beginning of 2021. I, as a member of the task force, and my colleagues on the task force, to my knowledge, I know for sure, but to my knowledge, none of us have ever been told to slow down on testing. That just is a fact. In fact, we will be doing more testing. Okay, that was Dr. Fauci today. Dr. Gottlieb, just your reaction in total to what you heard from Dr. Fauci today. Well, look, I think the issue around the masks is is real. Um, Early on, there was a shortage of masks, so it was hard to have a universal recommendation on people to wear masks. Even even simple masks like level one procedure masks were in short supply. There was also a concern that if you recommended that people wear masks, it was sort of a mixed message because the top line recommendation was they should stay at home. And so there was concern that if you said stay at home, but wear a mask, that was going to give conflicting guidance and people could, could, could think that they'll be safe as long as they go out with a mask. And so it would conflict with the, the overall recommendation, which was people should be staying at home. I think what these states in the South need to do right now is do very good contact tracing work, figure out what are the congregate settings where this is spreading right now. And they don't really know. They think it's the bars, but they don't have very good contact tracing back to those establishments. And then they're going to have to take targeted mitigation steps. They're going to have to be willing to shut down establishments where this is spreading. And if it's the bars or the restaurants, they're going to have to take targeted measures. That may be politically difficult, but the level of spread right now is sufficiently high that it's going to require some pretty aggressive steps to get it under control. And I don't think that just a seasonal effect at this point is going to do it. There's really no backstop between now and the fall. You cited some states in in the South, in in fact, today, Texas, Florida, Georgia, that made their policy decisions on, on reopening based on what was happening in Sweden. Now, are they paying the price for making some of those decisions tonight? Well, I don't know if they made it based on Sweden. What I said was that it it looks like the Swedish model insofar as they reopened against the backdrop of a lot of spread um, and they tried to take targeted steps to protect the elderly population, focusing a lot of resources on nursing homes. 
um, cognizant that there was going to continue to be spread. They opened the restaurants and the bars, and so people were going to congregate, and so the spread wasn't going to go away. And there was a presumption that so long as you had resiliency in the healthcare system, capacity left, you could deal with um, the continuing spread. And so I think that there was some implicit um, understanding that they were going to have continued spread in those states. I think what they didn't anticipate was that it would accelerate in the fashion that it has. But they reopened against the backdrop of a lot of spread, and it wasn't just going to go away. It was going to continue at, at that level at the very least and probably accelerate. And remember, it takes time for this to build at a community level before it really explodes into public view. And that's, in fact, what's happened. Um, this spread must have been underway for weeks and weeks and now we're starting to detect it because it was spreading in a community, young people, um, that were mostly not presenting either for testing or for medical care. Well, speaking of, we're seeing hospitalization rates for younger people tick up. How concerning is that to you? Well, very concerning um, because, number one, it's an indication that young people are getting sick. And we know that. Um, we, don't, we don't fully understand the rate. It's, it's presumed that a much lower rate of young people are going to develop more severe symptoms. But... It's in sufficient numbers right now that is starting to press the healthcare systems of these states. In Arizona, 84% of general medical beds and or of ICU beds and 83% of general medical beds are occupied right now. Um, you're starting to see in Texas, in, in Texas Medical Center in Houston, about 25% of ICU beds are occupied with COVID patients. So even though some of these states have a lot of medical resources, they're starting to press up against those medical resources. Um, Children's Hospital in Houston is now accepting adult patients. The states that you also have to worry about, and we haven't talked as much about it, it's states like South Carolina, Alabama, Arkansas that don't have the resiliency, don't have the medical capacity, and are also seeing rising cases. Those are states that could get in trouble much more quickly than a big state like California or Texas with its very big health care system. I saw a pretty sobering stat today. I'm wondering your, your reaction to it. If, in fact, it is the case that one out of every 20 people who've gotten COVID-19 have died, that implies a global death rate of 5%. That's much, much, much higher than I think people are, are, are expecting to hear. Well, that's a crude fatality rate. I mean, that's the, that's the fatality rate based on people who've been diagnosed. The presumption is, and I think it's a fair presumption, is at the peak of the epidemic, we were probably diagnosing 1 in 10 to 1 in 20 patients, at least here in the United States, maybe even less in a lot of other countries. Right now, we're doing a better job. We're probably diagnosing between 1 in 5 to 1 in 10 infections right now. I would guess 1 in 8. Um, so we're doing a much better job of turning over the cases. But even now, the 30,000 cases we're diagnosing each day probably represents at least 200,000 new infections a day. We're just only diagnosing about 30,000 of them. Let's get to some tweets, if we could, Dr. Gottlieb. My daughter's co-worker tested positive for COVID yesterday, asks our, our, our viewer. They work together on Sunday. How long should she wait to get tested to have a reasonable expectation of a true result? Typically five to seven days. Most people who are going to get infected will um, get infected within five or seven days. The, um, the classic teaching here in these instances is four, up to 14 days because there have been reports where the incubation period has been as long as 14 days. But I think if you get tested after seven days, you might want to go get retested again after another week just to be sure. My next question, uh, if I'm in my 20s without underlying conditions, I feel less worried about getting COVID-19. But I have seen some stories about serious long-term health repercussions what have you seen concerning long-term effects in healthier, recovered people? There, there do seem to be some suggestion that there's some long-term um, sequelae, long-term post-viral syndromes. They're rare, but we're seeing some indication that there are, which isn't that uncommon with a virus. When you see viruses become epidemic, 
you do see a small percentage of people have some long-term, oftentimes neurological features, which seems to be the case with this virus. Again, very rare, so I don't think most people should be worried about it, but there are some suggestions of it. And lastly, it's regarding testing. And the fact of the matter is there's been enough misinformation about testing that this question routinely comes up, and I'm going to ask it yet again tonight from our viewer. Is there a misconception between spikes in cases and testing? How is community spread determined? Just to be clear, I mean, we are testing less per capita than other places, even though we're testing more than we were and by a large number from the beginning. Yeah, testing per capita has gotten a lot better. There's still some European countries doing a better job than us, but it, we're at the, the um, certainly the top half and probably the top quarter of countries uh, globally right now in terms of our testing. It's not just a function of testing right now that the cases are going up. The positivity rate's going up as well. So in Florida and Texas, the positivity rates are around 10%. In Arizona, it's almost 20% right now. So it's not just that we're capturing more cases because we're testing more. There are more cases. The rising positivity rate is a guaranteed indication that there is more spread in these communities right now. Dr. Gottlieb, we appreciate it as always. We'll see you tomorrow night. Thank you for joining us once again. Thanks a lot. We have a deal tonight. The Baseball Players Union and owners have reportedly agreed to start a 60-game season on July 24th. John Tatum is the CEO of Genesco Sports Enterprises, a marketing and sports sponsorship firm working with major companies like PepsiCo and American Airlines, joins us once again tonight. John, welcome back. Uh, This was a long time coming. Wasn't sure it was going to get done, but it appears as though it is. Well, Scott, it's great to be with you tonight, and uh, I'm excited because after 104 days after 311, the day the sports world stopped, it looks like we're finally getting back to sports. So uh, the players are going to report on Wednesday, July 1st um, to their local ballparks. They'll have about three weeks of uh, spring training, pick up where they left off on, uh, you know, March 12th, March 13th, when the season and spring training got suspended. And then uh, we'll play ball uh, the week of July 20th, kick off 60 uh, games. Uh, The teams will be regionally positioned. Uh, So you'll see the National League Central uh, and the American League Central will will play a a schedule. The American League East, the National League East will play uh, schedules uh, regionally. And uh, and then we'll end up on September 27th and we'll start the playoffs, hopefully 28th, 29th and uh, wrap up the World Series by the end of October. What are you hearing? What are you hearing tonight? That's the plan. I'm sorry. What are you you hearing tonight from your major sponsors and what what is the impact going to be? Uh, to sponsors now? Well, there's going to be a lot of impact to sponsors. So uh, you've got a couple of new ballparks, uh, Globe Life Stadium here in Texas, North Texas, where I am, Uh, virtually a brand new ballpark. American Family Insurance uh, is the new title sponsor of the Brewers uh, ballpark in uh, Milwaukee. And uh, there's not going to be any fans in the stands. So uh, at least not to begin the season the week of July 20th. Now, they're going to leave it up to the governors to determine uh, how they allow fans and spectators back into the stands. And you're going to have the active governors like uh, Governor Abbott here in Texas. I'm sure uh, that he's going to allow fans in the stands at Globe Life and and for the Rangers and the Astros. Uh, But you're going to have governors like the governor in uh, Washington State, I uh, I wouldn't expect that uh, T-Mobile Park 
uh, will have any fans in Seattle for quite a while. Um, the MLB All-Star Game was scheduled to be played in Los Angeles at Dodger Stadium in, in uh, mid-July. Obviously, that's not taking place. There are some other uh, what we would call marquee events that have been scrapped. Um, so the International Series last year, you remember the Yankees and the Red Sox played in London, which was a great experience. This year it was scheduled to be the uh, Cubs and the uh, Cardinals playing in London. That's been uh, canceled for this year. Puerto Rico games have been canceled. And, uh, and then there are some things that are TBD. So uh, Major League Baseball was planning on playing a Field of Dreams game in Iowa, uh, which was originally going to be the Yankees and the White Sox. But because of this regionality to the clubs, um, they're going to probably have two central division uh, clubs. It's not finally uh, uh, or formally announced, but I would guess if the Cubs and the Cardinals were supposed to play in London, the easiest thing to do would have the Cardinals right. and the Cubs play mm -hmm. in Iowa lastly, at the Field of Dreams. Lastly, before I let you go, I, I said it wasn't easy getting to this finish line, and we're not quite across the finish line in, in full. Any lasting damage done to the game? because of the bickering back and forth and how long it took to get to this point? That's a great question, Scott. I, uh, I'm, I'm nervous, um, depending on the quality of product they put on the field. I think the fans will definitely come back in terms of viewership. Um, I think they'll, if they're allowed to, they'll want to come back to the stadiums. But, you know, it's hard when people are facing this, this pandemic 20% unemployment, uh, underemployment, to see people bickering over living off of, you know, uh, eight figures or nine figures. And, uh, you know, I can understand both sides of the argument. There's only two more years under the current collective bargaining agreement this season and next season, uh, the 2021 season. So the Player Association was very reticent to uh, go down the path of a, uh, any kind of salary cap, if you will. And certainly the owners, I think, uh, were very accommodating to pay the players a pro rata uh, you know, pro rata uh, of their salary. So if they're playing 60 games, if they were scheduled to make 30 million over 162, you divide 162 and, uh, and, and pro rata that out over 60. So the good news is we're at least going to have baseball. Cross yeah. your fingers. Yeah, we, uh, we'll see how it all uh, works out. John, appreciate the time once again. John Tatum joining us tonight, uh, as he said, from down uh, in the Dallas area. The other pro sports leagues have announced plans for what they hope their own seasons will look like. The NHL holds a tournament in two cities. The NFL planning to have a full season as of now. The NBA hopes to finish its season in an Orlando bubble starting next month. Kathy Engelbert is the commissioner of the WNBA, her league hoping to start their 22-game season in July down in Florida as well. Commissioner, welcome. It's good to see you. Thank you, Scott. Great to see you. So how did you come to your decision? How's it being received league-wide? Yeah, it was obviously a huge scenario planning exercise with lots of contingencies. And obviously, we started coming off our first virtual draft back in April with health and well-being of all those involved in our WNBA community, Paramount, leveraging off the NBA's extensive protocols. It's great to be in that family. And and we were looking for the health and, you know, the health and safety protocols and also um, really wanted a competitive season. And our season normally would be a summer season, 36 games. We're actually going to take a month off for the 
Olympics this year. Now that the Olympics have been postponed, that window's opened up for us. So we think we could put on a highly competitive season with a high quality of play in a good footprint um, down in Florida at IMG Academy. And IMG is obviously known as kind of an elite best in class. Uh, you know, athletic training, competitive environment. So we're, uh, we're excited and, you know, everybody has lots of questions and uh, based on your prior segment, testing, testing, testing will be key for us as well as all the other protocols that we're going to be following. Take me through that, if you would, uh, Commissioner. How often will you be testing? What happens if you have positive players? So we'll be testing before our players get there um, in the next in the coming weeks, and then we'll be testing every day when we get there. And let's see how we do in that first you know 14 day period or so with the test before, test during, and then determine it um, from there. But we'll be testing often, I assure you of that. And then obviously we are prepared for positive COVID tests. Um, we're also being getting prepared for other non-COVID uh, medical uh, things on site because obviously these players haven't played in a long time. And I think all sports are trying to deal with not only do we have to deal with a global pandemic, but we also have to deal with the normal injuries that might occur as part of the season. And with rosters, you know, uh, being cut down potentially for COVID and injury, you really have to uh, plan in advance. So obviously we'll do the appropriate quarantining, contact tracing, uh, we're, we're spending on technology as it relates to monitoring uh, everything that's going on at the single site and making sure, again, that relatively speaking, we're providing the best environment uh, that we can um, in order to put on a competitive season. What sort of conversations, if any, have you had with uh, Commissioner Silver of the NBA? You realize you may be the template for these other pro sports leagues. All eyes are going to be on you. Yes, every day. So obviously we're all learning a lot. There's a lot of questions. We're consulting with infectious disease specialists, epidemiologists, local public and local health officials. So I've certainly learned a lot about that whole ecosystem, as has Commissioner Silver and, and the NBA. So again, I feel blessed that we're leveraging off uh, their processes as well. Um, we'll be, you know, across the way in Florida and uh, again, have, I think, a, a really good testing protocol in place, as well as all the other health and safety measures and masks and temperature checks and symptom forms. And again, finding a technology to bring that all together uh, and evaluate and quickly be able to respond. And there's one thing I learned from my over three decades in business before taking this role is uh, agility is going to be key here. And obviously, things are changing every day and with the trajectory of the virus, and we'll have to continue to be agile. We'll be watching. Wish you the best of luck. Commissioner, thank you. Thank you so much, Scott. All right, Kathy Engelbert, she's the commissioner of the WNBA. Here's what's coming up next on this CNBC special report. Last night, Dr. Gottlieb raised the possibility kids would not be going back to school. Some states that are tipping into what we would fashion as an epidemic. It's going to be very hard to open public schools against this backdrop. Next, what two big-time education executives are saying about it. Before the break, the USA on Tuesday night, June 23rd. horizon for financial markets at pgim it's a question that over 1400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals specialized across asset classes but united in collaboration 
Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back on day 177 of the crisis. Here are some more headlines on the virus tonight. The University of Michigan will no longer host a presidential debate in October, citing public health concerns. That debate now moving to Miami. A new survey showing about 14 percent of business owners who received a loan through the government's Paycheck Protection Program expect layoffs when their funds run out. And the European Union may ban U.S. travelers when its borders reopen July 1st because the U.S. hasn't been able to control the outbreak here. Well, the summer of coronavirus is here. While students take a break, school administrators are working on plans for the fall. Just last night, Dr. Scott Gottlieb warned many schools may not be able to open their doors in September. California Department of Education State Superintendent of Public Instruction is Tony Thurman. He's with us tonight and also with us Addison Davis, Hillsborough County, Florida's Public Schools Superintendent. Gentlemen, it's great to have you with us. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Uh, Both of you are in the midst of a rise in cases. Tony, California reporting today a record number of cases daily, uh, 6,000. As I mentioned, Florida has its own issues, Addison. But, Tony, I begin with you. How are you thinking about the fall in light of this outbreak of the virus now? Well, Scott, even prior to this new outbreak or, or increase in cases, we, through our governor's help, we've already started shipping personal protective equipment to our 10,000 schools so that our students and staff will have access to face coverings and and hand sanitizer and things of that nature. Obviously, we're going to keep watching the situation uh, and monitoring on a day-by-day basis. We won't open our schools unless it's safe for our kids to do so, um, but we've already put precautions in place as well as procedures for how to safely reopen if it's safe enough to do so in the fall. Addison, uh, Hillsborough County, we're talking the Tampa area, correct? Yes, sir, it is. So what's your plan here for the fall as of tonight? You know, we've had uh, today we had a chance to launch a uh, multiple uh, models to our uh, constituents in the school board. Just talk about the potential reopening in that. uh, You know, one thing we did when we surveyed our constituents, we found that they just want opportunity for choice, a choice of whether or not they return to brick and mortar schools, whether they return to e-learning or they take on the Hillsborough virtual side of the work. So this our plan was very comprehensive to be able to address multifaceted and when you build a reopening plan, it's just not our children come back to work and how you deliver an instruction, but it looks about it looks at transportation. You have to look at the curriculum, delivery method, the digital divide, look at food services, transportation. It's all inclusive. So for us, you know, we work diligently with the Department of Education and our governor's office to really create a staircase approach to potentially coming back. But I agree with Tony. We are watching it minute by minute, day by day, in order to create the safety environment for our students in the working conditions of our adults. Addison, if you had to make a decision tonight, would students be going back in the fall in light of these rising numbers in the state of Florida? You know, right now we would come back in a blended model in an approach where we would have, uh, you know, we would be able to, you know, work and open our schools at at 50 percent capacity. That would limit and reduce the, the number of individuals in our classrooms and also in our common areas, along with being on our buses. So we would do it at half capacity and have a blended model of students having face to face 
and also being involved in the e-learning process to be able to protect all of our of our students with the health and the wellness. That's interesting. Tony, you have a 50 page manual, which I looked at in which you say this is not a one size fits all uh, document. Does that tell me that there could be different rules for for different districts? You do have uh, some six million kids in public schools and like a thousand districts from what I saw. You're absolutely right. And with the 1,000, you know, size of 1,000 districts, there is no one-size-fits-all. But we talked about the kind of recommendations that make sense. Our districts all make their own decisions locally, guided by their local county health officers. But we put out some guidelines that we think make sense in terms of recommendations. It won't surprise you. And they're the kind of things that we've heard will help to lower the spread. All it means is people are wearing face coverings, they're washing their hands regularly, and they're maintaining six feet of space. Now in a school, that's a tough thing to accomplish. So right now we're working to implement those guidance uh, recommendations in a way that helps our schools figure out how they're gonna make the space work. We're working to make sure they get enough computers for our kids. We have a, a balance of distance learning and in-class instruction that we're prepared for. But again, we're going to keep monitoring to make sure it's safe before our schools open. And they wouldn't be reopening until late August, and in some cases, September. We have some time, but we believe in being prepared, and we're working with our schools right now to make sure that they are prepared. We'll, we'll be here before we know it, much, uh, much to our kids' chagrin, uh, of course. Um, Addison, how tolerant are you going to be uh, in terms of cases? If you do have uh, an uptick in cases once school starts, how tolerant would you be? Well, this is all working with the the Florida Department of Health, uh, working with the Florida Department of Education, and also uh, the governor's office to to really look at proactive steps that we can take to to reduce the the spread uh, within our schools and also within our communities. You know, we're going to take the the necessary proactive steps to provide, uh, you know, mask and PPE equipment to our employees. We're also going to provide masks to every one of our students to be able to make certain that they have the option of wearing them. And then we're going to do a lot with providing ongoing education about uh, personal hygiene with our students, about washing hands. And we're going to take proactive, uh, intensive steps to be able to make sure all of our common areas, all of our classrooms, all of our transportation are, have the necessary equipment to be able to, uh, to create wipe downs, to do deep cleaning, to be able to use the necessary equipment to make sure it's, it's a safe place for every one of our learners. So we're going to continue to monitor this uh, you know, on an everyday uh, basis, a minute-by-minute minute basis, in order to make informed decisions. And, and you know, we, we, we look forward to our partnerships with, uh, with the health department and also working with the school board to make uh, you know, sound decisions. I'm going to ask you both to, to stay with me, uh, because for millions of students in America, the transition to remote schooling uh, was hindered by a lack of access to technology needed to learn for many students. Kansas City kindergarten teacher Jennifer Christensen uh, describes the challenges in making e-learning equitable in her own words. To not have the ability to be with them face to face is devastating. Not every family is set up to have a parent at home that can do e-learning with their kid. If we just send videos home and expect parents to take on the brunt of the teaching at home, we're putting a huge burden on families, which is really not fair. There are families that are not able to communicate with us at all, whether that means a phone has been shut off, being out of work might mean that you can't pay your phone bill. If a family can't communicate with the teacher, we can't expect any learning from the teacher to be getting to the student. Schools are hubs for so many different things. We provide 
hot breakfast and lunch daily. And a lot of our kids stay after school for an after school program and they get a hot meal in the late afternoon, early evening too. So that's three meals a day that kids could be missing out on because of school closures. So I think we have a long way to go in figuring out how to make things actually equitable. I I don't think that we should not do remote learning, but I think we need to keep that in the forefront of our minds. Okay, you just saw the video. Tony, I I turn to you. Uh, Not a new issue uh, by any means, but obviously more acute, if you will, given what's going on. How do we fix the digital divide? Well, Jennifer sounds like a great teacher, and I appreciate what she said. We're doing the same thing here. I I announced a task force on closing the digital divide because of the pandemic. We recognize that our schools went into distance learning literally overnight. And I want to applaud them for how resilient they were. But, yeah, there were some bumps, and many of our students didn't have access to the Internet or to computing devices. We literally have leaned in and put pressure on whoever we needed to talk to to get Internet service providers to provide free Internet, reduced-cost Internet, to hundreds of thousands of students. We've helped to deliver over 100,000 mobile hotspots. We're almost to another 100,000 computing devices just in the last few weeks being delivered to our students, and we're still asking for more. Our bottom line is we have three pillars. First and foremost, keep our kids safe. Second, address the mental health needs of our students. And third, we have to make sure that we are addressing quality of learning. And that means that we're going to have some standards around distance learning for our families who choose to have it. We're going to provide a quality education. And Scott, I want to make sure that you also know we're also working to address our students' concerns around trauma, around these incidents that they're seeing around police brutality and the impact of race. As we speak, we are rolling out a new initiative to make sure that there's implicit bias training in all of our schools. We'll do that virtually or in class But we know that our students are coming back to school in a way where the world is different than they've ever seen. We've got to support their social, emotional learning needs. And so those are our three pillars. We're making sure we provide those things for our students. Good points made on both fronts. Addison, are you thinking about the same sorts of things tonight? Yes, sir. All that aligns with the growing needs of our community. We, we learned when this pandemic uh, you know, first launched within our school district that inequities truly exist. And uh, you know, we had to go out to 220,000 students. We had to give out close to 40,000 uh, digital devices. And the devices just wasn't the, the end all. They didn't have the ability to connect to the connectivity to be able to get on the e-learning process. So between looking at internet uh, service providers, providing wi- you know, thousands of Wi-Fi hotspots within our community, you know, we also went over and beyond to make certain that we, uh, you know, extended packets to our learners. Uh, you know, if they wanted to have a pencil and paper packets, so they had multiple options to, to extend and drive through the, the learning process. And uh, this is ever growing. We looked at, you know, looked at heat maps and uh, related to free and reduced uh, lunch learning, determine what the actual needs are. We also looked at pockets of our community that didn't even have the infrastructure or the dark fiber to be able to have that connectivity. So, having plans to be able to address our learners. And at the same time, we talked about, you know, the, you know, we just, the educator talked about being able to, to serve our children for hot, you know, breakfast and lunch opportunities. So they had nutritious meals. We gave out 5.5 million meals in a 12 week span. And, uh, you know, that just shows the growing need of our community, but I agree, you know, coming back isn't all about returning. It's about making sure we address the mental health side of the work, but also not only only dressed in implicit bias, but being able to train our students mm-hmm. and our teachers about cultural relevance and how we incorporate that in our curriculum every day. Gentlemen, I appreciate the time very much. Tony Thurman, Addison Davis, we'll see you soon.
Thank Here's you. what's coming up next on this CNBC special report. Ahead tonight, the top-ranked U.S. pro on what's next for tennis. After COVID-19 hits the sport's top star, Novak Djokovic. We're back in two minutes. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. We're back with major news shaking the sports world tonight. Tennis superstar Novak Djokovic testing positive for COVID-19 after playing a tournament. He's asymptomatic and quarantined in his native Serbia tonight. It comes two and a half weeks before the start of the world team tennis season. That beginning in West Virginia, an event that is slated to allow fans in the stadium. Carlos Silva is WTT CEO. Sam Query, a top-ranked American men's player. Gentlemen, good to have you both. Thanks for having us. Sam, your reaction to this news about uh, Novak Djokovic? Um, You know, I think they were trying to do something good. They were trying to bring the sport back. They were trying to kind of, I think he was tied to a charity over there. I think if they had to to do it again, they would have not had uh, the player party, I think you guys saw, and and so many fans and the handshakes. And they didn't do a great job of of the social distancing thing. And so, you know, if they they could do it over, I think they would do the event again, but just be more conscious of, um, you know, maybe having just the players, no party, and and sports can come back in that manner. Just, um, you know, I think the way they did it wasn't right. Does it give you, though, Sam, pause in, in how you're thinking about your own progression here? As the tennis season is still trying to get underway, we are expected to have a U.S. Open, as we found out last week. Not at all. Um, you know, look, I, I don't I don't want players and tournaments to overreact with what happened. We saw last week uh, in golf, I think Nick Watney got um, a positive test. The tournament still went on. We're supposed to come back for official tournament play in Washington, D.C. Um, in about six weeks. So it's still a lot of time. In the meantime, we've got World Team Tennis coming up here in about a month. And they've done an incredible job. Um, you know, we haven't gotten there yet, but we're all going to take tests when we're there. There's going to be a separate check-in for the players. The fans are going to have their temperatures checked. So there's a way to bring these tournaments back. And, and World Team Tennis especially is doing a really good job at prepping everyone and hopefully putting out a good plan so the players and the fans can be safe. You have a big Carlos responsibility, uh, don't you? July 12th to August 2nd, you've got 60 players, you've got 20 coaches, you've got about 100 more staff and, and personnel. How are you thinking through the issues, many of which Sam just talked about? You have a lot to deal with with fans and that amount of people there. We do, and, and you're right. Sam did just touch on many of those items, but we've been working on it for uh, quite a long time. You know, we've been on White House briefings. We've been through all the medical. 
we're you know we're colleagues with the with the sports community and uh, we've all been in touch with each other. So we understand what the PGA tour is doing and the NBA and everybody. And I think that's really helped. And, uh, and I think we've chosen the right place in West Virginia. You know, the, the COVID incidence rate has been very low there. And I think we're going to put all of those procedures in place. And like I've told Sam and the players, and, and we've told all of our staff, we've got to be diligent every single day as we get to day one on July 12th all the way till uh, till August 2nd when we have the finals live on CBS. And so it's uh, it's something that you got to work through every day. It's the same thing we've got to do in our in our daily lives as well. Why have fans at all, given the the risk, albeit what you may think is is small, it's still going to be there if you're inviting outsiders in to watch this event? Well, you know, uh, we're going to be at the Greenbrier in West Virginia. The Greenbrier is open for business. So we all could go to the Greenbrier today. Uh, the Greenbrier in West Virginia said that uh, they're allowing people in their restaurants that we could allow some fans in the stadium. The stadium holds 2,500 people. We're going to put 500 people in the stands. We're going to socially distance them. And just yesterday, we also announced that we also changed one of our criteria, and we're going to have fans also wear masks in the stands. Uh, that's something that we, uh, we felt – uh, that with everything going on, that to be a little bit safer is uh, is only a, a smart thing to do. So we announced that yesterday as well. Sam, lastly, can you just put into perspective what, what this has been like? Um, you know, the tennis career is, is not necessarily all that long. It's hard to miss big money events. It's sort of you eat what you kill in, in, in the sport. And if you don't have these huge events that a top player like you can make a lot of money in the short time frame you have, how do you deal with that? Uh, you know, you just got to look, everyone's dealing with it. Whether you're a tennis player, you work in a restaurant, um, you know, you're, you're, a, you're a salesman, everyone's struggling right now. And, and for me, um, you know, this is my 14th year on tour. So I don't know how many more years I have left, you know, maybe it's two, three, four years. So it is a bummer to miss a, another Wimbledon because I only have a few left, like you said, but, um, fortunately my wife and I, my, or my wife, you know, we have a four month old at home. So I've got to spend every day at home with the with a new little baby. And normally as a tennis player, I would have been on the road and missed some early days. So that's kind of been the, the silver lining for me personally, at least that I've got to be home every day with the, with the little boy, but I'm just hoping that these tournaments can get back up and running. And world team tennis is a great first start. Like you said, the U S open is doing everything they can and they're look, they're going to move forward and have the tournament, which I I'm personally so excited about. I think the other players are excited and, and hopefully, um, you know, at the end of the day, it, it's going to work and we can be socially existent and, and things will move forward in a positive way. Certainly hope so uh, as a tennis fan myself. Gentlemen, thank you for being here. Carlos Silva, best of luck with this event. We'll certainly be paying attention. And Sam Corey, best of luck to you as well. Thank you. All right. There's a lot more ahead on this CNBC special report. Straight ahead, a popular travel advisor. On destinations, starting to see some real pickup. Before the break, our world on the 177th day of the pandemic.
We're back. The European Union gearing up to reopen its borders on July 1st, but Americans may be banned from entering. The New York Times reporting tonight, EU authorities don't believe U.S. leaders have the virus under control. That hasn't stopped travelers, though, from booking other destinations this summer. Matthew Upchurch is CEO and chairman of Virtuoso. It's a global travel network. Sir, it's good to have you here. Great to be here, Scott. Where, Thanks for having me. Where are we seeing um, an uptick? Where do people want to go? Well, travel is reopening in phases, and it's opening first in a, in a drive, uh, drive markets. So particularly properties that are in the mountains, the beaches, open spaces are the first places that we're seeing. Um, and a lot of interest. In fact, some of our some of our absolute best are uh, hotels like uh, the Montage Palmetto Bluff in South Carolina. Places that they're actually almost sold out for the summer. So you're actually finding a tolerance for staying in a, a fairly decent sized hotel. That's somewhat surprising to me. Yeah, I, you know, I think that the reality is there's a tremendous amount of pent up demand, and if you think about it. You know, their people are, are venturing out to those places where they feel they're comfortable. We're also starting to see some air travel. People are getting more, you know, more more flights have been put in place by JetBlue, by Delta and American, and that's starting to happen. But I do think that those locations that have um, more space, nature, et cetera, are, are, are very popular. And it's also important to remember that a lot of properties are not opening up at full capacity. So they're doing things to ensure that there's appropriate uh, social distancing and health protocols. What about these border restrictions that we're seeing reports about? How's that going to impact travel going forward? Well, you know, I'm really glad you asked that because I think one of the things that people need to understand is that the, the travel industry is the world's largest service industry. And one of the things that is absolutely necessary for its recovery is to have a global um, alignment from governments, as you were talking about the EU, for example, um, and how do we have the right protocols so that we're able to do that uh, appropriately? Because consumer confidence isn't only the pandemic, but it's also the ability to understand, you know, what what I can expect um, and and the type of, of border closings or not that they're going to be in place. Quickly, travel as we ever knew it, as we as we know it uh, or knew it, is it ever going to come back? You know, it will come back. It'll come back very strong. You know, our advisors right now, it's its amazing. There are things that are counterintuitive. Uh, for example, we're a huge seller of, the, of cruises, and a lot of people have sensationalized that as never coming back. And the reality is those clients that, ha- that have cruised in the past, our January sales year over year right now are up 7%. And that's with January of this year being incre- you know, a really great year. So there's a lot of pent up demand. There's a lot of people out there and savvy travelers, you know, those that use the, their advisors that have the connections and things. They're the ones that are actually taking advantage of the relaxed cancellation policies, because that way they can make sure that they got the right places, the best places, particularly in a world where there may be some limited capacity going forward. Interesting. We'll follow it. Thank you, Matthew. It's good to talk to you tonight. That's Matthew Upchurch with us. We'll be right back. Our nightly shout out, Papu George's Hot Dogs in Newport News, Virginia, Rosie's Twin Kegs in Nashville, the Verrazano Pizza Shop in Half Moon Bay, California, Pop-Up Chicken Shop, Bloomington, Illinois, Pee Wee's Crab Cakes in New Orleans. That does it for us. I'm Scott Wapner. Stay safe and Shark Tank is next. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX. 
Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.